Yep, you read that right. And yes, I actually mean it. It's okay to be a racist. It's okay to be a homophobe. You have my permission to be a transphobe or a xenophobe or an Islamophobe. You have a right to your phobias. You have a right to be afraid of any group of people you want to be afraid of. That's totally cool. And you'll find that most of us on the, uh, I guess you'd call it the left, we're pretty much all that way. You know, we're not, a, not on a mission to change what you believe or anything like that. We're not on a mission to make you stop being Christians or anything like that either. If you want to believe, believe. Believe whatever you want. And it's totally cool. Right up to the point that that belief manifests itself in you. Crossing the border. Into my life. My best friend and I. We grew up in the reddest town in the reddest state you can imagine. And he still lives there. He's been surrounded by a lot of right-wing people and a lot of right-wing culture. And my friend, being who he is, is uh, nobody that you want to fuck with, nobody that you want to piss off. So the right-wing people in that town, for the most part, have been wise enough not to say any bigoted, hateful shit in his presence, at least for the most part. And uh, because his imposing nature generally has the right wing on their best behavior, he has a higher opinion of them than I do. He doesn't think they're as bad as I think they are. And you know what? He's entitled to that opinion, and he's still my best friend in the world. And he always will be. We don't need to agree on everything. As we were talking politics recently, he asked me what it would take for me to be cool with Republicans. That's an interesting question, and I'm not going to get into the answer to that for me personally. But it did get me thinking about the larger context of that question. And by that I mean what would it take for the left and the right to get along in America. I'm out with my dog right now um, because he's a, an 80-pound husky and it's a snowstorm. There's no saying no to him when he wants to go out into it. So I'm going to record this while I let him do his thing, and hopefully it won't be an unlistenable mess, but if it is, I'm still going to post it anyway. So, back to the question. What would it take for the right and the left in America to get along? Specifically from our perspective, what would it take for the left to not see the right as a radicalized, hostile faction who is bent on doing a shitload of harm? I've given serious consideration to that question, and I've made some notes and written some paragraphs, but now I'm recording them in a context I hadn't planned, so 
I'm going to have to go from memory. Anyway, I have a list of things that the right would have to start doing and stop doing in order for things to be copacetic between our two sides of the political spectrum. And I'm going to jump right into it. Number one on this list, by a wide margin, is that the right needs to stop using dishonesty as its standard operating procedure in order for there to be peace between us. Now, I'm putting this right at the front, right at the beginning, because if this one can't be achieved, then the rest of this list is completely pointless. It really is. Back when Steve Bannon was running Donald Trump's presidential campaign in 2016, he made a lot of very shrewd observations, and probably the smartest thing he ever said was that in this race, it isn't the Democrats that are the opposition, it's the media, journalism. You see, when you want to get the population to believe a narrative that's not true, that's a losing game. You can't go at it directly. Steve Bannon figured out that you need to flood the zone with shit. And those are his exact words. Flood the zone with shit. He's uh, been in the media a long time. He started Breitbart, along with Andrew Breitbart. And he knows how these things work. I have to give him credit for being a very talented strategist. When you flood the zone with shit and you make everybody look like the bad guy, you reset everything to zero. When you make it seem like nobody can be trusted and you just flood the zone with so much shit that people lose all trust for both sides, for the entire spectrum of media. Every journalist on every network at every paper, it resets everything to zero and it leaves people disconnected. It makes people feel like nothing that they see can be trusted. And probably the smartest thing that he did after flooding the zone with shit was biding his time for a while and not immediately acting. When you put people in a political desert where they don't feel like they can trust anyone, you need to wait a little bit before they get thirsty. You see, when people are untethered that way and they don't feel like there's anyone they can trust, after a while they will start wishing that they could trust someone. And that's when the next step comes in. If you want to be trusted at that point, you wait until they're really thirsty and then you do or say something that aligns perfectly with the ideology of the audience you're pursuing. You have to say exactly what they want to believe. Not what they do believe, but what they want to believe. You have to take the thing that they wish was true, that they hope is true. And you have to be full-throated in declaring that it is true and that they're right. When nobody trusts anybody, when it's just a giant political desert, the only thing that you can say to gain people's trust when you've untethered them that way is to tell them that they're right. And this works especially well 
if it's an unpopular view, the kind of thing that's kind of rejected by polite society. And he played it perfectly. He made it seem like every single news media network was completely dishonest. And then he tapped into the ideology that distrusted these outlets the most. And told them everything they believe is right and true. When you give someone a glass of water in the desert when they're dying of thirst, they will be loyal to you. And that's exactly what he did. And really, it's so simple, but it works. It is literally a cheat code to radicalizing a population. Now, Steve Bannon didn't invent this technique. It's, it's been around for centuries. But he executed it on the most massive scale in the history of human civilization. And in doing so, he popularized it. When you see something work on such a massive scale, when you see it work so well, well, it's extremely tempting to adopt that strategy as your standard operating procedure. And pretty soon, well, your entire constituency, whenever they're faced with a narrative they don't like, something that debunks something they believe in, all they have to do is say fake news. And if they say it often enough, they'll believe it. If you say it often enough, you can make them believe it. It's very tempting to use something that works so well. But you have to let it go if you want there to be peace between us. And yes, I am talking to the right wing. With a list like this, I might as well speak it directly to you. You gotta let that go. Yeah, it works and it's effective, but in using it, you put a wall between us. You turn it into an inevitably adversarial situation. And if your goal is for the two factions in America to get along, you have to let it go. The thing is, the only kind of narrative that benefits from a lie is a narrative that's already false. If your mission is noble, if your cause is honorable and for the greater good, then the narratives that support it will be the truth. And given the fact that they are the truth, they will stand on their own without you needing to put your thumb on the scale and support it with lies. Personally, I wouldn't even risk a lie. Why would you risk a lie when you're telling the truth? Because when you relate these narratives to people, they might agree with you at the time, but later on, when they find out you were lying about any aspect of what you said, they'll immediately distrust everything you said. And what you've achieved essentially, if what you're saying, the core of your narrative is true, what you've done is you've gotten someone to distrust the truth. You've gotten someone to distrust your truth. But what I've seen on the right since Steve Bannon did this is really kind of fascinating. 
right-wing people have explained to me in the rare moments of honesty I've, I've been able to get out of them, that yes, they do tell a lot of lies and they make up a lot of stories. But those lies are in service of something they believe is a greater truth. The core concept of whatever narrative it is they're promoting, pushing, they believe so completely that it's true that they'll say anything, true or false, to support it. Again, it's tempting. It's tempting to do that because it's effective, at least in the immediate moment. But if you want peace, you have to let that go. Donald Trump, when he was in office, lied over 30,000 times. Now, if you want to get technical about it, the actual number of unique lies was less than 15,000. But when you factor in all the times that he repeated those lies, said them multiple times, yeah, it really is over 30,000. In terms of his public statements, in press conferences, on social media, in interviews, his public statements were true approximately 3% of the time. 3%. And yet, he didn't lose your support. And that is one of the, the biggest reasons why we see you as a radicalized faction who is bent on doing a shitload of harm. Why else would someone be so fucking dishonest? And why else would someone support a president who is that fucking dishonest? When you encounter a fact, an event that doesn't support your narrative or even opposes your narrative... It's really tempting to pretend that it never happened, that it isn't true. And it's really tempting to pad the other side of the scale by piling bullshit on it. But you have to let that go. You have to resist that temptation if you want peace. You have to have faith in your own beliefs. You have to have enough faith in your own narratives that even if you do see something that doesn't support what you believe, well, you have to have faith in the fact that there will be enough on the other side of the scale to outweigh that. And if there isn't, well, you can continue to believe that if you want to. Like I said, I'm not here to tell you what to believe. But I am telling you, if you want peace, you have to stop lying in service of your narratives. You have been pushing so many hoaxes and so much bullshit about the LGBTQ community, indoctrinating children, and grooming, that there's an actual Wikipedia article that details all the different hoaxes. That's how much you've been lying. And one of the biggest examples is Kyle Rittenhouse's supporters demonizing Anthony Huber and Gage Grosskreutz, referring to them as felons when they were not, referring to them as violent, when they were not. Now, just to be clear, Joseph Rosenbaum was a child-molesting piece of shit, and he's not part of this discussion. Fuck him. But Anthony Huber, he got in one fight with his brother when he was 18 years old. And it got way out of hand to the point that he actually picked up a kitchen knife and waved it at his brother and said, stay away from me. His brother was trying to get him to check himself into a 
a mental health facility because he believed Anthony was having a lot of problems and was unstable and a, a danger to himself. Anthony did not agree, and he refused to check himself into a facility, and they got in a fight about it. Anthony felt threatened to the point that, you know, once they beat the shit out of each other for a few minutes, he picked up a kitchen knife, waved it, and said, stay away from me, and then he dropped it and ran. Eventually he was arrested, and some salty-ass cop piled a bunch of charges on him that didn't even stick. I don't remember what the final disposition of uh, the case was, but I do know it was all pled way down. I mean, he's a fucking kid, for Christ's sakes. He just needed help. And since then, he's had no trouble. And that fight he got in with his brother, despite the fact that a knife was brandished, not used, just brandished, that fight pales in comparison to the fights I got in with my brother growing up. We were Irish twins, and <laughs> we had some legendary fucking knockdown dragouts. And we didn't just brandish weapons, we used them. Chunks of uh, firewood off the woodpile, a rock, a baseball bat, a framed picture, a heavy book, a vacuum cleaner attachment, whatever was handy, we beat the shit out of each other with it. And you know what we did after that? The same thing Anthony Huber did. We got up, dusted ourselves off, moved on, grew up, went to college, got jobs. And yet, the right wing constantly depicts him as a violent felon who committed the crimes of false imprisonment, strangulation, assault with a deadly weapon. Which maybe I guess technically that's kind of true since he did get his brother in a chokehold at one point. And he did wave a knife around. But depicting him as a violent felon based on that? That's a, a key example of what I'm talking about. You have to let that go. Yeah, it's tempting to support Kyle by lying about the people he shot. But if you want peace, if you want there to be a decent relationship between our two parties, between our two factions, you have to resist the temptation to be dirty-ass fucking liars. You just have to. That's what we do, and we keep on doing it. We keep on being honest in the hopes that you'll follow that example someday and actually come back to the table to have real conversations. And by the way, you did the same thing to Gage Grosskreutz. You know, there's a wanted poster meme that features Anthony Huber, Gage Grosskreutz, and Joseph Rosenbaum. I've talked about it before. And under... Uh, uh, Gage Grosskreutz's name, it says violent felon, felony burglary, illegal weapon. It's disturbing the peace. And it's all bullshit. Well, he did have one noise complaint, so if you want to call that disturbing the peace, eh, maybe I can give that to you. Doesn't make him a violent felon. He was actually held on suspicion of felony burglary briefly until better suspects and evidence emerged. And he was released. He didn't do it. That's the thing. And the illegal weapons charge, that was actually just him with his concealed carry weapon over the legal limit for alcohol. One time, he got a ticket for it, a small violation. Didn't even cost him his right to concealed carry. He paid his fine and he never did it again. 
Uh, as for the noise complaint, I think we've said all we need to say about that. Now, it's worth pointing out that on that night in Kenosha, Kyle Rittenhouse may have styled himself as a medic, but Gage Grosskreutz is the real deal. A trained EMT. And he treated about 10 people for wounds from rubber bullets, batons, pepper spray, pepper balls. This is someone who really wanted to do good in the world. And he was there to help. And what he saw when he pulled his gun was this kid who had just talked about having shot someone. And the crowd around the kid, Kyle Rittenhouse, reacting to that as though he was an active shooter, which is a pretty understandable reaction when somebody says they just shot somebody and they're openly carrying a fucking rifle in their hands. Gage Roskreutz didn't immediately engage. Anthony Huber did. And after he was shot to death, Gage Grosskreutz engaged and held him at gunpoint. Kyle put his hands up. And people kept on attacking because if you know adrenaline, you know it gives you tunnel vision. They probably didn't even realize that Kyle had his hands up there, probably only looking at the rifle, and they sure as hell didn't see Gage Grosskreutz. People rushing into the circle and out, attacking and then fading back into the crowd. The only static target in that situation that Kyle had to work with was Gage Grosskreutz. So he put his hands down, grabbed his rifle, and shot him. And you can see Gage's reaction. You know, he wants everybody to stop attacking Kyle so he can subdue him. And when that doesn't happen, he finds himself unable to pull the trigger on Kyle, despite the fact that he's now shot two people that Gage knows of. One of them right in front of him. But, despite the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse is a sociopath, well, Gage Grosskreutz had no way to know that at the time. All he knew was that he was looking at a scared kid and couldn't bring himself to pull the trigger. Later on, he did say that he wished he had, and that was based entirely on the fact that he lost the use of that arm, maybe permanently, and Anthony Huber was killed. None of which would have happened if he had pulled the trigger immediately. And yet the right wing characterizes that as him wishing he had shot Kyle just because he wanted to commit a murder for the sake of doing it. And you fucking know better. You know, I could go on all day, lie after lie that you tell, pile after pile of bullshit that you shovel into the information sphere in support of the narratives that you believe. And you know what that tells me? The fact that you always move so quickly to the point of lying that tells me you don't have enough confidence in your own narratives, in your own beliefs, to let them stand on the strength of their own truth. If you really strongly believed what you say you believe, you wouldn't need to lie in support of it. You would just lay out the facts as they are and let them speak for themselves. Like I said, I could go on all day because that's how much you lie. You lie, and you lie, and you lie. And I've said this repeatedly, I know. But if you want peace between our two factions, if you want a decent, honest relationship, you have to be honest. You have to stop lying so goddamn much.
you know, I, I'm not going to say no lies at all. Because, you know, we're humans. We fuck up. And every now and then there will be some dishonesty. But that can't be your default position in every conversation about every fucking issue. You can't just resort to lying to solve every problem in the entire political discourse of America. You can't just fucking lie all the time and expect to be respected. The more you lie, the more you're going to get shut out. And that is the truth. So, anyway, I could I could make an entire episode just just about how much you lie. And I have, I've done that. So, I'll just say this one last thing about this first list item, the fact that Republicans need to stop lying so much. If you did this one thing, this might actually make the entire rest of the list unnecessary because it might make the rest of this tolerable enough that we could even potentially get along. I mean, this all by itself would change the political landscape in a way that would make it much more workable, much more civil. So, hopefully that's food for thought. The second item on the list... You've got to stop circling the wagons when somebody on the Republican side does something wrong. You've got to stop immediately covering for them and pretending they did nothing wrong. And I know this sort of could fit under the category of lying, but I felt it needed its own list item because it is a unique circumstance that just seems to keep happening over and over again on the Republican side. The first example that comes to mind is Jim Jordan. When he was a wrestling coach at Penn State, the team doctor was abusing the wrestlers on the team Jim Jordan was coaching. He was sexually assaulting them, sexually abusing them, molesting them. It was an absolute guarantee that if you had an appointment to go see the team doctor, he was going to mess with you. Okay, this guy was an absolute predator. Jim Jordan knew about this. He absolutely did. The wrestlers, the other coaches on the staff, so many people have come forward and said there's no way Jim Jordan didn't know what was going on. But that alone, that's bad enough. But that wasn't all that he did. That wasn't even the worst of what he did. He actually called the victims up on the phone, and there are phone records that prove this. And he begged them not to come forward. He tried to minimize what happened to them. He tried to convince them that it was no big deal and that they should just let it go, that it would be better for the team and everyone else if they just pretended it never happened. And this is despite the fact that he was telling this to kids that this was still happening to actively. One of the wrestlers was actually talking about how Jim Jordan called him up and was crying, bawling his fucking eyes out, begging him, begging him not to say anything about it. Seriously, 
A guy doesn't cry like that. He isn't driven to tears like that just because of a, a scandal that will indict someone else for what they did. There's a lot more to Jim Jordan's involvement than what's come to light, but I'm going to have to leave it there. I'm not going to make any kind of uh, assumptions or, or suppositions based on facts that aren't in evidence, but two things are pretty indisputable. He knew what was going on, and he begged the victims not to come forward. And yet, you circle the wagons around him, you pretend he did nothing wrong. You pretend that he didn't know what was happening, and you accuse all the victims of lying about Jim Jordan telling them not to come forward. And yeah, this, this could fit under the, the category of lying, but like I said, this is a very specific behavior that goes beyond just lying. This is covering up for bad actors. Not just bad actors, absolute predators. Now, look at the example of Andrew Cuomo on our side. What did we do when it turned out he was sexually harassing women all over the place? Grabbing women, propositioning them, physically forcing themselves into their, uh, physically forcing himself into their physical space and shoving his body up against them. Forcing displays of, of intimate affection on them that they were not okay with. I mean, this is sexual assault. What did we do? We demanded that he resign. We booted his ass out of the party. We got fucking rid of him. Now, at the time that this came out, Andrew Cuomo was a hero of our party. He had made more headway, apparently, in dealing with COVID in New York than almost any other state did. He was doing so well that he was actually donating his resources and his personnel to other states to help them with testing and contact tracing. When Trump's White House was denying resources and denying funds to what he called poorly run blue states, Andrew Cuomo was filling that void by providing what the White House refused to. There was even talk of him potentially running for president at some point, maybe running against Trump in 2020. And his entire legend, his entire reputation, someone that we perceived as a hero, someone that we really admired, we didn't circle the wagons around him. We didn't pretend he did nothing wrong. We didn't like it. We weren't happy about the fact that he was a sexual predator and that he had to go. We didn't like losing a hero on our side, or at least someone we had believed was a hero. But we didn't hide from it. We didn't hide from what he did. We didn't try to conceal it or deny it or minimize it or downplay it. We eliminated him from the situation. We demanded his resignation, not just the other Democrat politicians, but the constituents, the everyday people.
the Democrat voters. We demanded that he had to go. Name once that you've done that on your side in the era of Trump ever. You can't because you never have. Brett Kavanaugh, Donald Trump. Hell, you can really almost name any Republican politician and they've done some kind of horrendous shit that should have ended their political career. I mean... Lauren Boebert on Twitter talking about the brown people at Walmart. Marjorie Taylor Greene chasing down a kid who watched his friends die in a mass shooting. A fucking child who survived a mass shooting and watched his friends die. Marjorie Taylor Greene chases him down and talks about how she's carrying a gun and that he's not going to take it from her. Can you imagine a kid, a fucking teenager who has survived a mass shooting being chased down the street by a powerful person talking about how they have a gun on their person. They're right there in his physical space, right there, right in his face, talking about how she has a gun and behaving in a really hostile and aggressive manner. You know, David Hogg, he kept it together pretty well during that incident. And he actually didn't say anything about it. Marjorie Taylor Greene, she ratted herself out. She posted the video of that encounter. And you circled the wagons around her. You re-elected her. You pretended what she did was okay. You even applauded her for it. And demonized the shit out of David Hogg. Treating him like he's some kind of a a tyrant that's out to deprive you of your rights. Whether you, I mean, I don't agree with a lot of what he says, honestly. But I respect him and I respect what he's been through. And if anybody has earned the right to say what they want to say on that subject, whether I agree with it or not, it's him. He's earned it. He shouldn't be demonized for having any of the perspectives that he has. Yeah, he's fighting against gun rights. He's fighting for stricter gun control, and these are things I don't believe in. But he's trying to do right. And this woman, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you treat her like a hero for practically threatening his fucking life. Like I said, take almost any elected Republican at this point and there's something about them that they've done that should have ended their political careers, but you just circle the wagons, you defend them, you minimize what they did, deny what they did, condone what they did when it's fucking unconscionable. You gotta stop doing that if you want peace between us. When people on your side do wrong, you have to hold them accountable. We can't do that for you. We can try, and in some cases, we can take action against them, but then we just end up fighting you and them. And that's not what this is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about doing what's right and holding people accountable when they do unconscionable things. And you just seem to be incapable of that.
So you need to figure that out. And until then, this relationship is going to have to remain adversarial. Man, it seems every item on this list I could go on and on about all day because there are so many examples of them. But you know what? I'm going to cut it off here and move on so that we're not here all night. Next on the list, you need to start respecting the First Amendment. And by that I mean the specific part that says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Basically, it's the separation of church and state. You need to start respecting the separation of church and state. Now, I doubt you could actually recite any amendment to the Constitution, so you probably don't know this part of it. So I'll break it down for you. First, let's focus on the part that says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. It's pretty clear if you're at a third grade reading level or above that that is saying Congress will not make any laws that favor a particular religion. That means religion will not be the basis of any law that Congress makes. Now, this isn't just for the purpose of protecting people from a particular religion having too much influence over the government. It also does the, uh, the reverse of that. Okay? It's vice versa. James Madison talked about how he wasn't just concerned about religion influencing government. He was concerned that if our government was based on a religion, especially Christianity, which he was a devout Christian, he was concerned that if it was a religious government, a theocracy, that government could influence religion, that reinterpreting the tenets of that religion in a way that's politically convenient is something that someone might eventually resort to if the Bible were the basis for U.S. law. And it's for that reason that he was you know, one of the original champions of this being a secular nation where people were free to worship as they please and no matter what religion you follow, no other religion will be able to do anything that takes precedence or, or deprives you of your right to worship as you want to. And that also means you won't be forced to follow the tenets of any religion you don't believe in. And if your religion is atheism or agnosticism, that means that Congress won't make any law that obligates you to follow the tenets of any particular religion. And this has really worked out well for us in, in a lot of different ways. It's also worked out really well for the world at large. During our first couple centuries, a lot of the world has seen us as the shining city on the hill, the example to follow. And after we became a secular nation, a non-religious nation, many other countries that had always been theocratic in nature followed suit and became secular, stopped basing their law on their religious text. And as they did that, Human rights abuses declined sharply. 
that's the thing. I'm not going to say America is the greatest country in the world or anything like that, but we have set a positive example in a lot of ways that the rest of the world has followed to the benefit of humanity in general. But you seem completely prepared to throw the separation of church and state out the window. Actually, people like Lauren Boebert have outright defied the separation of church and state, and she even called it bull. And she said, <laughs> the government should follow the church. The church shouldn't follow the government, which that's some really mush-brained fucking shit to say. Because the, the church never has been obligated to follow the government in any way. Unless you count, uh, you know, not being allowed to murder black people because you're part of the Christian identity movement. So what am I talking about here? What is it that you're doing that indicates your intention and, and your actions toward just throwing out the separation of church and state? Well, first of all, in every single government proceeding that takes place these days, everyone, without exception, you bring religion into every discussion. Now, I'm, I'm totally okay if you want to say one nation under God and maybe even say a prayer at the beginning and end of every proceeding. Fine, that's not that big of a deal. It's probably not great, you know. It probably has no place there, but that's a concession I'm willing to make. You know, as long as you can keep it within reason. But at the confirmation hearing for Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, for when she was being confirmed for the Supreme Court, every Republican that questioned her, every Republican that cross-examined her that entire time, was asking her questions that were almost like a religious quiz, almost like a fucking Bible quiz grilling her about how, because she was uh, a Protestant, could she fairly judge a case involving a Catholic? And trying to uh, grill her about how devout she was in her faith, how often she went to church. This is the kind of fucking behavior I would expect from the goddamn Taliban. Not a fucking first world secular democracy. What the fuck are you people thinking with this shit? Seriously, go back and watch the video of that. It's just Republican after Republican approaching her, uh, giving her some kind of backhanded compliment, and then following it up with these cringy fucking soliloquies about the tenets of Christianity and trying to find a, a religious context for every single, uh, every single thing that had ever happened in her judicial record. It was fucking embarrassing. Seriously, it, it was like, uh, it was like fucking Sunday school. The religious shit just didn't stop the entire fucking time. But honestly, that's that's really the least of it when it comes to the the behavior on your part that completely throws out the separation of church and state. In the majority of red states, it is literally illegal for two people of the same sex to be in a physical relationship. And, a 
of course, until uh, marriage equality passed. The Obergfell decision was the only thing that was allowing people in red states to get married at all. And, well, the extremely far-right fucking Republican Supreme Court had their sights set on both the Obergfell decision, the uh, gay marriage decision, and also Lawrence v. Texas, which is the only thing protecting gay couples from being locked up in fucking prison in the majority of red states just for being in a consensual relationship with an adult in the privacy of their own home. <clears throat> and there is no reason for that unless you look at the Bible. There is no other basis than religion for that to be a law anywhere. Leviticus 18.22 If a man lies with another man as he lies with a woman... Is an, it is an abomination, and both shall surely be put to death. Their blood will be upon them. And based on that, in the majority of red states, you've made it completely illegal for gay people to be in a physical relationship. No, it's fine if you don't want to believe in, in being gay. If you want to believe it's a sin. If you want to believe that every single one of us are going to hell, fine. But this is supposed to be a secular nation. Separation of church and state. That belief shouldn't be influencing policy, let alone being the entire basis for the policies you enact. You, the Republicans on the state level, passed 238 anti-LGBTQ laws. 238 anti-gay laws in just the first 119 days of 2022. That is two anti-gay laws passing in red states every fucking day for the first four months of the year. And it's just kept going since then too. That was the biggest rush of it, but it hasn't stopped, not even close. It's just been skyrocketing every fucking year, more and more of these laws. There is no logical or factual basis for being anti-gay when it comes to state policy. In terms of nature, the animal kingdom, there are gay animals all over the world. And some even mate for life. So, if you're trying to call it unnatural, you don't have a leg to stand on. You absolutely do not. Hell, same-sex relationships even predate the invention. Yes, that's right, the invention of religion. I said it. It was invented by people. I don't care if you believe it or not, it's just a fact. If you are looking for any basis for being anti-gay, for drafting any kind of policy that's anti-gay, that criminalizes physical relationships between people of the same sex, there is nothing in science, there's nothing in nature or biology or anthropology that supports laws criminalizing gay relationships. The only basis for that is religion. Leviticus 18.22. That is it. And that's not something that should be considered. That shouldn't be a contributing factor in any way when it comes to criminalizing people's relationships. And yet, that seems to be the bedrock of your entire fucking platform. And it has to stop. You don't want to be gay, don't be gay.
but enacting laws where you can just toss gay customers out of your restaurant right onto their ass and refuse to serve them. Hell, if you're a tow truck driver and you're rescuing somebody from a snowstorm and they're gay, enacting laws that allow you to just leave them there? What the fuck is wrong with you? What is broken inside you that makes you think this is appropriate or acceptable? This is supposed to be a secular, democratic republic. Secular, non-religious. If you want to be anti-gay, fine. That's okay. But it shouldn't influence policy. Like I said, you can believe whatever you want until your belief crosses the border into my life. Now, let's look at the rest of that uh, passage of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Well, my religious beliefs say that it's okay for me to love my husband. And those 238 laws you passed in the first four months of 2022, two every fucking day, that, prohibited, that prohibits the uh, free exercise of, of my beliefs. And yet you seem to have no problem fucking doing that. Now, I get that it says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion and prohibiting the free exercise thereof, as in the U.S. Congress. And yes, that means that by the letter of that law, state Congress can pass laws that are based on religion. State governments can do that. It's the U.S. Congress that is prohibited by the Constitution from doing that. Now, just because you can do that doesn't mean you should. You may not be violating the letter of the First Amendment, but you are sure as fuck violating the spirit of it, and you goddamn well know it. You goddamn well know it. And for that, fuck you. Taking advantage of loopholes, specifically for the purpose of fucking harming people, that is just about as unethical as you can get when it comes to being a, a, a public servant, a representative in our government. You claim to be originalists, you claim to be constitutionalists, and yet you violate the spirit of it. Every fucking chance you get when it comes to that. Now, you can keep doing it. And in red states, nobody's going to stop you. And you can try to do it on the federal level, but... Yeah, that's, that's going to keep on failing. And, uh, you know... <laughs> I have to rub it in a little bit. Most of the country doesn't believe what you believe. 80% of the country, well, okay, 79% of Americans oppose discriminating against people for their sexual orientation or gender identity. Which leaves you, the other 21%.
So you're going to keep losing at the federal level. You can make red states unlivable for gay people if you want to, and we probably can't stop you from doing it. But like I said, if your objective is peace between our two factions, between our two parties, it has to stop. You can hate us all you want to. You can believe we're going to hell. You can even flat out say it. Hell, you teach your kids, Leviticus 18.22. You teach your kids that we're abominations who should be put to death. And we really don't fucking bother you about that. Because it's just words in a book. The problem comes in when you make those beliefs the fucking law. If you want peace between our two factions, you have to stop it. You may want to do it, and you can want to do it all day. You can wish to do it. You can be tempted to do it, but once you actually take that step into reality and start making laws that criminalize us just loving each other, well, as long as you're doing that, there can be no fucking peace. There are 21 states that are considered red states, and in the majority of them, it is illegal for me to have a relationship with my husband. And the only thing that makes those laws unenforceable is the Lawrence v. Texas decision, and the Republican Party is doing their damnedest to reverse it. I know I keep saying this. If you want peace, that has to stop. And it's not just us, not just the LGBTQ community. It's everybody that believes in individual liberties. Everybody in that entire 79% of America. There will be no peace between you and that entire 79% until you stop disrespecting the separation of church and state. Brief intermission. I decided to spend the rest of the walk giving my dog my full attention. One thing I take pride in is that my dogs live uncommonly long and healthy lives. I had a Newfoundland that lived to 16 and a half. I do all the things that you would expect, all the nutritional stuff, preventative care, all that. But what I think really makes the difference is every day I give them long walks. We play. I pay attention to them. Make sure they get all their energy out, get all the exercise they can, and I never make them wait more than a few hours to go to the bathroom. You know, taking care of their kidneys and all that stuff by not making them hold it. My buddy, he is a, an 11-year-old, 80-pound husky with no fat on him whatsoever, despite the fact that he eats like a horse. He is still high-speed, high-energy, almost endless endurance at the end of the walk which ended up being over two hours this time he was well irritated that we were going inside he was ready to play in the snow for uh i don't know maybe forever so yeah that's that's why i cut in and, and quit recording during the walk and decided to just spend the rest of it paying attention to him he was a good boy he was a good sport while I uh, spent all that time talking to you, you, you fucking Republicans, about all the shit that you would hypothetically need to do in order to restore some kind of peace between the two political factions in America. So, 
on with the rest of it. There are a lot of things that are sort of dishonorable mentions that technically could fall under the category of you fucking MAGA lunatics need to stop lying so much. You know, the first thing on the list. But there are some things that are rooted in lying and dishonesty that still sort of deserve their own individual recognition. One of those is the way that you apply the law, policy, rules, fair play, all that. And I'll give you an example. So, we have Jacob Blake. Now this guy, he shouldn't have been at his ex-wife's house. He created a disturbance. He should have gone to jail. The way he was disregarding those cops, pretending like they didn't exist, walking past them like they weren't there and just trying to get into his van, basically openly showing disregard, disrespect. Now, I understand that someone might have told them that he had a knife on his person somewhere, but it clearly wasn't in his hand. He wasn't making any threatening move toward anyone. And there were at least four cops within arm's reach, easy tackling distance of him. Now, they did deploy a taser, and it failed. It didn't penetrate his clothing, or the battery was dead, or it was defective. Who knows? Uh, that information might be out there why it failed, but I have uh, not seen it. And I haven't looked in a while, so it could have been something that, you know, uh, came to light later on. I don't care. I don't care what happened with the taser. The only thing that matters is that it didn't work, and Jacob Blake, when he saw that that taser had been deployed against him and it didn't work, that only emboldened him. That only made him strut even harder. Basically rubbing it in even further, acting like the taser didn't exist either. And I'm sure he knew he was going to get thrown to the ground and arrested and, you know, dragged in, charged with a, a bunch of stuff. He had committed a crime and he knew it, but he wanted to show as much disrespect for these officers as possible on the way to, uh, getting arrested. What he didn't expect was that that last cop would basically look at him and think, oh, you're going to treat me like I'm worthless? Well, I'm going to treat you like you're worthless. And uh, as Jacob Blake opened the door to his van, that cop shoved the muzzle of his service weapon into Jacob Blake's back and emptied half a mag into him at point-blank range with Jacob Blake's daughter just a few feet away. If you watch the video, she is jumping up and down and screaming because she just does not know what to do. She does not know how to process what's being done to her father right before her eyes. Yes, Jacob Blake was a sexual assaulter. He was a domestic abuser. He was a very problematic dude. And honestly, uh, I'm not fond of the guy. I don't like people who commit sexual assault and domestic abuse. But that was still her dad. And this cop still buried the muzzle of his pistol into Jacob Blake's back and emptied half a mag into his body, putting him down like a rabid animal in the middle of the street when he wasn't making any threatening move toward anyone. Basically, he was just trying to show disrespect and pretend that those officers weren't there. That's all he did. And for that, death. Now, luckily he lived, but he's never going to be the same. I mean, he is... To say that he's never going to be back to 100% would be an understatement. He's never going to be back to 
15%. His digestive system is essentially destroyed, his renal system, his intestines. Um, I forget what all actually uh, happened to him as a result of those seven shots, but yeah, he, he is going to have a, a massively shortened life expectancy, and he's going to live a, a lifetime of chronic pain. And will probably never eat or digest like a, like a normal healthy person ever, ever again. Because why? Because he ignored those cops. He pretended that they weren't there. He strutted past them with the maximum amount of disrespect he could convey non-verbally. That is the essence of that situation. Now, the parts of that that were my opinion were that Jacob Blake was emboldened further by the taser failing. That was the first thing that was my opinion. The second thing that was my opinion was that that officer who put seven bullets into Jacob Blake's back at point-blank range looked at him and thought, you're going to treat me like I'm worthless? Well, I'm going to treat you like you're worthless. Maybe that's not what that cop was thinking. But I feel like I'm pretty good at reading body language, and I'm a pretty decent judge of character. And I do think that was pretty similar to whatever it was that was running through his mind at that moment. He didn't have to shoot him that way. He could have just grabbed him, put him in a full Nelson. He could have thrown him to the ground, put him in a chokehold. There are four other cops within arm's reach. It wouldn't have been hard to take him down. So, now that I've set the table with that, let's look at Ashley Babbitt. The House of Representatives was under siege. The Capitol was being invaded by a hostile force. People were being interviewed on the streets and showing flags that they had fashioned into spears. A gallows was constructed. People were invading the building, taking shits on desks, chasing people around. They beat a cop to death. So, this officer, this Capitol Police officer, was in the House building, in an office, protecting our representatives. In the stairwell, where the door opens onto the uh, main hallway there, in the House of Representatives, um, that door was locked. They had barricaded themselves inside, blocked the door, but there were windows around that door that one could get through if they could get them open or break them. I can't remember which. It's been a while since I've seen the Ashley Babbitt video. But despite the fact that they had barricaded the place and the place was under siege and the, the officer warned her over and over, do not come through that window, she came through anyway. At a time when the Capitol was being invaded, he told her she had warning after warning. He was just one guy protecting our representatives from hundreds of people. Just in that doorway, in that stairwell, you can see... In, in the vestibule, there's literally dozens of people packed in right by the door. And if they started to come through, this one guy had no hope of protecting our representatives against a crowd like that. Even letting one person through would allow that person to open that door and let the rest in. You know, these, these are all the things that go through your head in just a few seconds, in a moment like that, that's just soaked in adrenaline. That cop made the right decision to shoot Ashley Babbitt. If he had let people start streaming in, start flooding in, well, most likely the country would have been in chaos because at least some of our government would have been wiped out right then and there. 
And even if that wasn't the case, even if they're going to go in there and just uh, speak their mind and and uh, share some opinions with these representatives, even if that's all they were there to do, the cop had no way of knowing that. I mean, why would you place your trust in a crowd that was invading a building like that? He had to do what he did. Okay, so now that I've gone through the particulars of these two uses of deadly force, look at the way the right wing portrays both of those. Pretty much everybody on the right wing says that the Jacob Blake shooting was a good shooting, that that was the right thing to do, and that the shooting of Ashley Babbitt was not. The opposite is objectively true. It is actually the absolute indisputable truth that the Ashley Babbitt shooting was definitely a good shooting. And it is the objective truth that the Jacob Blake shooting was not. I don't care how the courts ruled. Any decent human being that sees what happened there, bearing a pistol into a guy's back who wasn't making a threatening move toward anyone, when there were a handful of cops right there that could have just tackled him, could have just brought him down, wouldn't have been hard. So that there's a lot of contrast between those two situations, and yet the right wing applies deadly force and its justification in a completely inequitable way. You say the Jacob Blake shooting was good, and you say that the Ashley Babbitt shooting was bad. And it's very clear what's going on there. There's a philosophy that I hear from the right wing all the time when it comes to complying with police officers and all that stuff. Comply or die. Except on the heels of that. Well, they would tell you that philosophy applies to thee, but not to me. Yes, it's comply or die unless the suspect is right-wing, is white, is on the same QAnon MAGA fucking page as the rest of you fucking Republican lunatics. I mean, a black man shows some disrespect to some cops, yes, he should die, but a white fucking QAnon lunatic... Well, it's excessive force if the cops employ any method more potentially damaging than swaddling her in fucking silken pillows to gently bring her to the ground so they can put some nice furry padded handcuffs on her and sing her a lullaby to calm her down on the way out to the cruiser where, of course, she's white and she's right-wing, so she should be immediately released. Okay, I'm being a little facetious there. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it is fucking ridiculous the way you apply these standards. It's unequal as fuck, and you know it. Jacob Blake is black. He's kind of a problematic dude. Well, more than kind of. And he's more likely to be left-wing than right-wing. And of course, hey, deny this all you want to. Republicans are fucking racist. Deadly force... It takes almost no justification at all. It takes almost nothing for that to be a good shooting in your eyes. But when it's a white QAnon lunatic, well, every effort must be made 
to preserve her life at all costs. Even if that means letting the entire crowd flood in and massacre half of our fucking House of Representatives. So, anyway, didn't want to spend too much time on this one. This is one example. Again, I could give you examples all day of the way that when it comes to people you don't politically agree with or they are, you know, a color that you don't like. Uh, deadly force is totally okay to use on them, but when it's a white person, when it's a right-wing person, well, you want justice and uh, and it's excessive force. And that's just fucking bullshit. That's chicken shit. And yes, it, it's dishonest, and it could really fall under the whole Republicans need to stop fucking lying item on the list, but I felt this one deserved its own uh, little bit of attention. Now, there's a lot of things that could fall under lying. Like I said, all the demonization, the fact that demonization is literally the entire playbook when it comes to political discourse from your side. And all of it is dishonest. Like I said, there's a whole Wikipedia article listing all the hoaxes that you people have spread about my community, the gay community. Accusing us of grooming kids. That's bullshit. And, and I've been over this in a, in a full, I did a full episode on this. But in a nutshell, if 30 fucking years of torture and fucking shaming, telling me that I'm going to go to hell threatening to kick me out of my my parents' fucking house, telling me I'm an abomination who uh, shall surely be put to death. If 30 years of that browbeating and shaming and pressure didn't make me straight, what makes you think a drag queen reading somebody a storybook about a prince falling in love with another prince, what makes you think that's going to turn a kid gay? When nothing that's said during any of those drag story hour sessions insinuates in any way that they should be gay or bi or anything. Yeah, they come up with a drag name and design an outfit. So fucking what? That's nothing compared to the grooming that was done to me and to every other gay person who ever grew up in a fundamentalist Christian, Catholic, or any other aggressively heteronormative home or community growing up. All that fucking torture and shame and violence and fear that doesn't make us straight and you think one storybook's going to make kids gay. It's amazing how fucking disingenuous you are. So I have to reiterate, if you want peace between our factions, you've got to stop fucking lying. You really do. And really, that's the end of it. I could give you examples of all day of things that you need to stop doing or start doing in order to make peace, but... I feel like that covers really the, the broad strokes of it. That covers most situations that you create that has turned our, our entire political relationship between the parties into a, an aggressively adversarial situation of where their freedom encroached on someone else's rights. That's what this was supposed to be, a completely free country, excluding doing anything that hurts another person. Now, how to actually execute that and make that a reality, that's a more complicated thing, and the way we approach that has to evolve 
as we evolve, as technology evolves. It has to change. You know, it, they did a great job, the Founding Fathers, in setting up an infrastructure, a government philosophy that was adaptable. And it still is. But the thing that, that you fail to realize is that it's never going to be perfect. Well, there's many things you fail to realize. Any endeavor that is run by human beings, any human undertaking, is going to be imperfect. And it's going to be just about as imperfect as we are as a species. And it may not seem like it right now. But I think we're doing pretty fucking well. It's sloppy, it's messy, it's chaotic. And you never know what's going to happen from one day to the next. But you know what? No one group or person has enough power to dominate, subjugate, or abuse any sector of the American population without repercussions. Now, this is sort of a recent development because, obviously, the way slaves were treated, the way the black community was treated, but we are slowly getting to a point where that even applies to them, to where even they can't be abused without some kind of repercussions. So we're actually doing pretty fucking good, whether you want to believe that or not. But like I said, I know you don't want peace. I know you don't want us to get along. So really, this is just a thought experiment, purely hypothetical. But I had fun with it. I thought it was interesting. So I figured I'd share. And that's it. Okay, I don't have my notes in front of me, so I'm somewhat remembering these things out of order, but that's okay. I'm really only doing this for me anyway. So, second to the last item on the list is Republicans need to stop siding with corporations and against workers at every fucking turn. Now, I've told this story before, and I'm sure I'll tell it again, but Eleanor Roosevelt brought young black civil rights activists into the Democratic Party in the 50s. This caused the racist Southern Democrats to no longer want to be in the party. So they switched to the Republican Party, and then the Republicans who were already in that party found that they didn't want to share a party with their former political rivals who had been the racist Southern Democrats and were now the racist Southern Republicans, the descendants of the fucking Confederacy. So, after all that, after the racist Southern Democrats became Republicans and the existing Republicans became Democrats, and we ended up with the parties we have today, well, the Republicans needed to reestablish themselves as serious political players. And for that, they needed some powerful relationships. They needed financial backing. And this happened right as corporate America was realizing that they needed to take a more subtle strategy, a more long-term strategy, to destroy unions in America and keep people as poor as possible. Republicans needed to reestablish themselves as a party 
at the same time that corporate America needed politicians that they could bribe and put in their fucking pockets. And ever since then, well, that relationship has been working out really well for both corporate America and the Republicans, because not only do Republicans get bribes in exchange for voting against every policy that would help workers and voting for every policy that would help corporations and using the filibuster whenever voting alone doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't just get them the bribes. It actually helps them manipulate Americans. Because when people are living paycheck to paycheck, when they're poor, when they're struggling, every increase in taxes, in the price of any commodity from milk to fuel to housing to cars, every little increase, every little bit of inflation, every tiny little incremental tax hike in response to inflation, it all hits like a fucking ton of bricks. And when people are barely making it, and these things hit so hard, obviously they're going to want to know who's responsible, and Republicans have perfected the art of pointing the finger at Democrats every time something goes up, keeping the attention of their supporters on that final straw that broke the camel's back, while distracting their supporters from that entire haystack they put underneath that final straw by doing everything in their power to collaborate with corporations to make sure people are paid as little as fucking possible. The corporations, they've got their money's worth out of the Republicans. And the Republicans, oh, they've gotten a king's ransom by selling their fucking soul. Not only have they been enriched by corporate America in this relationship, but they've won election after election after election by pointing at Democrats and saying, They're the reason you're broke. They're the reason gas costs so much. They're giving all your tax dollars to welfare queens. Yep, election after election, brain-dead supporter after brain-dead supporter buying that line about welfare queens. In this arrangement, they have absolutely cleaned up. In corporate America, they have gotten more than their money's worth. They didn't just get Republicans killing every possible increase to minimum wage so that minimum wage has only gone up a dollar fifty in 25 fucking years. They didn't just get that. They didn't just get Republicans voting down or filibustering every policy that would stop them from unfairly targeting employees just because they want to have a union vote. On top of all that, they have managed to instill a legislative philosophy in Republicans of complete deregulation. They bend over backwards, do everything they absolutely fucking can, to shoot down, to vote down, to filibuster, to defeat any law from passing that would influence in any way the way corporations handle any aspect of their business, the production of their goods, the way they handle their employees, the way their taxes work. They've gotten far more than their money's worth out of this arrangement. And that's the background for this item on the list. If Republicans want peace, if they want this relationship between our two factions to stop being so fucking adversarial, you assholes have got to stop siding with corporations at every turn and siding against workers. Because it's fucking crushing society. 53% of Americans don't make basic cost of living. 
Since the year 2000, suicides have gone up from one in every 8,000 people to one in every 5,000 people. That works out to about 45,000 suicides every fucking year. And poverty is what's driving that and mass shootings and so many other social problems. So like I said, you want peace? You want to stop fighting? Stop siding with corporate America at every fucking turn. And at least fucking once in a while. Once in a while, support a regular person who's trading away all the best years of their life, 40, 50, sometimes 60 hours of their week, to not even make enough to fucking live on while corporations continue to keep the entire share of their projected profits every year making cuts to what the workers get to make sure that they meet their projected profits. And that brings us to the final item on the list. Compromise. If Republicans want peace, if they want this relationship to work, they have to compromise. You assholes have got to fucking pursue some middle ground, except something in between every now and fucking then. Just once in a while. Instead of throwing tantrums and threatening to, you know, take down the country, to, to activate your followers, to load up their trucks with guns and ammo and take back the country from the libdards. Fucking talking about a second civil war every time you don't get every single goddamn thing you want like a bunch of fucking babies who don't want to share their toys. I want applesauce right now. I want chocolate milk right now. I have to have it right now or I'm going to scream all day and shit my fucking pants. Fuck you. You want this country to actually work? To actually function? Middle ground is what it's all about. That's the whole point of having two political parties. Neither side gets everything that they want. But what we end up with are balanced solutions that work for the greatest number of Americans. That middle ground is where reality is. That middle ground is where America thrives. We don't get everything we want all the time, and we're okay with that. But you seem to find it completely fucking intolerable to not have every policy discussion go your way. To the point that you'll just kick over your chair and run out of the room just because you didn't get what you want. And accuse everybody of being corrupt because they didn't immediately bend the knee to you and hand you the keys to the fucking kingdom just because you showed up. Fuck you. Middle ground. Compromise. When America is working at its best, it's when we are compromising, working with each other. A little from column A, a little from column B. We have one party that is far more focused on helping struggling people so that they don't starve or freeze to death in a fucking alley because the, the father of their kid just fucking split one day. Or whatever circumstance led to, to someone struggling. We don't judge. We just want to make sure we don't have people freezing to death in alleys. And, you know, that's, that's an oversimplification. There's so much more to it than that. And then we have the Republicans who are more focused on fiscal responsibility and not overspending. 
And you know what? I will admit, sometimes Democrats do go too far with spending on social programs and, and trying to help people. And that's why it's so important to have that compromise. I've said this many times before, and I'm sure I'll say it many times in the future. But any human endeavor, anything run by people, is going to be inherently fucked up. But it's only going to be as fucked up as the average person. It'll be influenced by some people who are good, and some people who are, well, severely not good, and people from every point in between those two parts of the spectrum. It's chaotic, it's messy, it'll never be neat and tidy, it'll never be perfect, because we'll never be perfect. And whenever you're adopting one-size-fits-all solutions like a democracy, like majority votes, there are always going to be some shortcomings in policy, infrastructure, you name it. But it works. It works. It may not seem like it right now. But even now, we're doing far better than most of the world. We have so much freedom. We have an absurd level of uh, wealth and resources. And yet, we still have poverty. But you know what? It's a work in progress. And that's the thing. You always talk about making America great again. You always say that as you try to mold America and change it from what it was intended to be into something that is perfect from your perspective. Plenty of people have tried to create a perfect world, or at least a world that is perfect from their perspective. And when they do, the body count is usually somewhere in the millions. Humanity at large, and especially America, would be far better served if we just tried to be a little bit better each day than we were the day before. And once we've achieved that, we reach a little higher and a little higher and try to do a little better each time. It's something we can do. It's something we should do. But we can only do it if we have two parties who are operating in good faith with neither one trying to consolidate power and cut the other one out. That's the only way this can work. You have to compromise. You may not like it. You may not get everything you want. But that's part of being an adult. And if you could zoom out and look at the totality of circumstance, you would see that really is for the greater good. Now, I need to come clean about something here. I know that this is sort of presented as, uh, hey, Republicans, you want to make peace? Here's what you do. And that is kind of how I presented it. But I have to confess something. I know you don't want peace, and this whole thing is just a thought experiment. You are high on this conflict between the factions like a fucking drug. The righteous anger, the righteous violence, and the hate that you spread, you get off on it. You gleefully demonize and discriminate. So, 
don't think for a second that I'm actually telling you to do these things so we can have peace, because I know that's not what you want. You don't want peace. You don't want any kind of at least civil relationship between the two sides of the, the political spectrum. What you want is to dominate. And you've made that clear. If there was one other thing I would add to the list, it would be seek middle ground on policy instead of throwing a tantrum when you don't get every single thing you want at all times. Because that's what we do. We make concessions. We cross party lines. We find that middle ground with you. But you never do that with us. So I know you don't want peace. And I know you're not originalists because so much of your platform and your philosophy and your ideology run 180 degrees counter to both the spirit and the letter of much of the Constitution and the entire philosophy that this country is built on where people would be free all the way up to the point of where their freedom encroached on someone else's rights. That's what this was supposed to be, a completely free country, excluding doing anything that hurts another person. Now, how to actually execute that and make that a reality, that's a more complicated thing, and the way we approach that has to evolve as we evolve, as technology evolves. It has to change. You know, it, they did a great job the Founding Fathers in setting up an infrastructure, a government philosophy that was adaptable, and it still is. But the thing that, that you fail to realize is that it's never going to be perfect. Well, there's many things you fail to realize. Any endeavor that is run by human beings, any human undertaking is going to be imperfect, and it's going to be just about as imperfect as we are as a species. And it may not seem like it right now. But I think we're doing pretty fucking well. It's sloppy, it's messy, it's chaotic. And you never know what's going to happen from one day to the next, but you know what? No one group or person has enough power to dominate, subjugate, or abuse any sector of the American population without repercussions. Now, this is sort of a recent development because, obviously, the way slaves were treated, the way the black community was treated, but we are slowly getting to a point where that even applies to them, to where even they can't be abused without some kind of repercussions. So we're actually doing pretty fucking good whether you want to believe that or not. But like I said, I know you don't want peace. I know you don't want us to get along. So really, this is just a thought experiment. Purely hypothetical. But I had fun with it. I thought it was interesting. So I figured I'd share. And that's it.